0: to a Buddhist ceremony in a Theravada tradition, you see it is chaos. (laughs) (laughs) But it all works. I don't know why. But there's lots of food and there's lots of people. It's a celebration, which is wonderful. And one of the things, I don't know why I keep liking this, but every year you know, they do a celebration of the katina robes, especially it's a royal robe this year, and so uh, after the lunch is completed, they do a circumambulation of the hall here, and all the Thai people, in the olden days, the Thais, no matter who they were, would do their little dancing as they went around. And you know, they might think that's sensuous, but when you see the age of some of the people who <laughs> It's just so (laughs) funny, (laughs) but they just have a good time and it's a celebration of doing something good for the temple. So that'll be happening uh, tomorrow. For those of you who can stay here, how many people are going to be staying? How many people going? (laughs) Okay, about half, yeah, okay. So, and again, for the food, Make sure you have a good breakfast if they can still make you breakfast. Is there breakfast in the morning for the people yeah, here? Just, just toast. Okay, toast. Poor things. And <laughs> 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 left leftover porridge. Oh, leftover porridge, okay. <laughs> and then after that, there'll be heaps and, heaps and heaps and heaps and heaps and heaps and heaps of food afterwards. But it's like just managing to get it. There's obviously long queues, because a couple of thousand people at least uh, on that day and when they get their food, you have to go into the hall and there's about, you know, the tables are there and there's maybe about, I don't know, six or seven, eight tables. And so the point is, you may see something and not the table you're on in another table, but no U-turns. No U-turns. <laughs> so you go through and then out, otherwise there'll be just uh traffic jam in there. Yeah, I told them to stick to one table and move up. Yeah. Yes, easy enough to say, but <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you're not looking this way, and somebody <laughs> goes another way. <laughs> you try to make people happy, but and again, you're going to be eating. I mean, those of you who leave, you're going to be eating tomorrow evening somewhere. So it doesn't matter if you don't get a full moon, a full not moon, a full <laughs> moon cake, a full. <laughs> you don't get a full meal uh, tomorrow because you can. Pick up on that in the evening. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, this year's katina funds um, uh, go to which monastery? Uh they have to go to the monks monastery, that's like a katina rule. Okay. Uh, yeah, have to go to that one. And so this year I think I've already told you what we decided uh, Batmobile. My Batmobile, yeah. But if I can't get a Batmobile then just another oh, electric uh, vehicle, yeah. They're very expensive over here because Australia is really behind the the times with their cars. So sometimes even if we want to get one, we have to wait and order it in and wait in the queue until it arrives here. But anyway, that's what we want to do. And the reason for it is so that uh, we can lessen our emission of fuel, emission of uh, carbon, and also, you know, we are transforming some of the buildings with lots and lots of solar panels, so we should be able to charge those cars up without any, any fuel, and without using electricity from the grid. I don't know, do you think that's a good idea? Yeah. Are they very popular in Singapore, the electric cars? Yeah, so we're trying to do our best. The trouble is, though, that some of those electric cars look very flash, very posh, and so that's a bit one thing I'm a bit concerned about, when they see the monks in these <laughs> top range cars. But it's not a Rolls Royce, I'm not getting a Ferrari, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just an ordinary car, but like a good standard. Oh, but in Singapore there are some small electric cars, yeah. because it takes longer to charge up at the moment yes, indeed. But in Singapore, you don't have far to go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Over here, it's a long way to go. Okay, so let's start the, uh, the questions. Okay, I just had a quick look at them. Last night, I only left three in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, not this many, anyway. Anyway, never mind. Okay, here we go. Is it true a monk can disrobe seven times? Is it the same for female monastics? Now, for the the males, it was just a tradition. So it's nothing in the Vinaya about this. Only that there was one monk. He ordained, and he missed his wife. He disrobed. So then he went back home, and he found out just how difficult home life was. So he ordained again. He did that six times, he disrobed six times and the seventh time he became a stream-winner and he went to the monastery and said we've had enough of you and he said no I'm a stream-winner now so they ordained him and that was the last time. That's just like a tradition and I think for the nuns, I don't think there is, they can disrobe and then ordain again Different tradition? different tradition. So you're in the best tradition here. You can describe as much as you like. <laughs> as long as you're ordain afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> very good. But Ajahn, because it's so difficult to get the book ordination, I think most of the yeah. time you can't easily... That's true, yes. <coughs> just because it's so... Yeah. yeah, indeed, yes. That's very true. Now it's hard to get that your ordination, as you all know, so once you've got it, they are more valuable goods than the monks, so please preserve them. Thank you so much for this retreat center, especially the beautiful lake. I go there almost every day to meditate, seeing nimittas every now and then, also occasionally a pair of kangaroos hopping by, Fishes and a duck swimming happily in the water. Never been so close to nature. Stillness, peaceful, tranquility, I think. Uh, no wonder, nimbus appear. Excellent. That's very nice. Just, uh, one of the problems is, Venwosewi, uh, how long have you been staying here so far? It's about eight months, nine months? ten months, okay. How many times have you gone down by the lake? I think I've quite a number of times, but probably not. Not as much, yeah. Yeah. Because I've noticed that as well. The Bodhinyana Monastery, very beautiful monastery, lots of nice little places you can go and sit, but I usually stay around my hut. It's one of those things that if you actually live in paradise, you do not appreciate it as much as those who are just visiting. You've probably seen more of Jhana Grove in the past nine days than I have in the last six months. Weird, isn't it? That's why sometimes when I do get a visitor and they want to be taken around, I enjoy that. Because then I go and see places I just uh, don't go and visit these days and I, I know where the beautiful places are, and so I take them there, and it's, it's a joy, honestly, because I see things which I forgot are really there. Anyway, that's wonderful. <coughs> I also realize that joy, happiness, and stillness comes from, comes from feelings of gratitude first. I went to share my experiences, how these limiters appear, it's true, when you have that gratitude, you're looking at the positive things in all the people here. All the people here are sitting on the seats and you come in and it encourages you. And there are some of the people sit perfectly still and upright and you feel, oh that's really impressive, it can be done. And then some people are nodding and you have more gratitude for them because it makes you feel not so bad. So the gratitude, you have like a lack of joy and light-heartedness, the ability to laugh. Honestly, as I remember it, the first uh, couple of days I taught here, you didn't laugh that much. But now, <laughs> I can't stop you laughing. Is it the case that because the retreat is ended that makes you more happy? Because <laughs> I remember years ago, seeing all these photos of people on retreats. And they said, look at them. You know, they went to one of these retreats and look how happy they are. I said, yes, because this is the last day of the retreat. (laughs) I like to see photos done in the middle of the retreat. That's where you can find out whether it's a good retreat or not. Please help me understand Bodhisattvas versus Buddhas. My Tibetan friends want to be one, but my Buddhist fellowship friends want to be the other. That's very good, so we have the opportunities to be whatever you want. But the difference is, and of course I'm biased on Theravada, I don't know if that's biased or It's true or whatever, but a Bodhisattva, they always, one of the things they said, the Bodhisattvas sacrifice their own enlightenment so they can serve other people. And like a Buddha, no, he lives, teaches, and then when he passes away, he's gone forever. Parinibbana. That's really selfish, some people would argue. Why do they, they got enlightened, they've made all these wonderful abilities, can't they stay a bit longer? And that's not really understanding. If you were very sick, say you had a heart disease or something, who would you like to do the the heart transplant or the heart operation? Someone training or someone who's one of the best doctors in in the hospital? Would you like to have a trainee do your heart operation? So the trainees, that's like the Bodhisattva, they're not enlightened yet, they always say unenlightened Bodhisattva, and they put off their enlightenment so they can sort of help others but actually if you totally become enlightened, a Buddha or an Arahat that's when you basically have graduated from the University of the Dhamma and you know what you're talking about so you can do really good operations But they said they all die, they'll disappear the Buddha passes away but then he teaches and creates so many other enlightened beings, and then they pass away and they create many thousands of other enlightened beings. This world still has many enlightened beings. There's enough specialist doctors to keep this Buddhism growing. And so, you're not losing out by being enlightened, it's just like a doctor, you do your very best and you spend so many years so sort of teaching and helping and serving. And when you retire, you've not only done the job of healing people, but you've also created other specialist doctors. You trained them, taught them. And that's one thing which is missing from that argument. Yes, the Buddha passed away, but before he passed away, you know, he created so many other enlightened beings, monks and nuns. And that kept the Buddhism going until this day. 25, 26 centuries, and spread all over the world. He even spread to Australia. <laughs> Interesting, spread to Australia. The Buddha. this a very famous simile of Buddhism. The Buddha laying on his right side and having this um, image. It's like an imitator. That which way he was uh, looking. That that was where. Buddhism will spread in the future. And people always say, well if he's on his right side, where he's looking, that must be to the west. The United States people always love that simile, he's looking to the west, that's where Buddhism is going to to flourish in the future. And I said, no, he's looking to the south, that's where his feet are pointing. Where you're looking is not where you travel, where your feet are pointing, that's where you go. (laughs) And they were pointing south. Where's south? <laughs> <laughs> Australia. <laughs> so that was my interpretation of that simile. Feet pointing south means that's where it's going to travel. But look, uh, yeah? Well, you know this head was pointing north and the feet was pointing south. That was in the, the story. Uh, head was. Yeah, yeah. Was in the Vinaya? I forget exactly where it was, but anyway, the feet were pointing north and the feet. the head, yeah. and the feet were pointing south. So it's obvious to me. <laughs> Another interesting thing, because I think I might have time this morning, that, you know, that even on the east coast of Australia, They don't have monasteries like Bodhinyana and Dhammasara, monks and nuns in such a great number here, and a retreat center like this. You don't find that in the east coast of Australia. Why on the west coast of Australia? And I remember just reading an article about ancient times, about many, many centuries ago, thousands of years maybe, that um, India, and Australia were one continent, they were together. Many years ago they separated, It was then called Cordwana land or something? Yeah, and then they just, they were, they were together. And even now you check up with any uh, geologists and the, um, the rocks underneath Jhana Grove, Bodhinyana Monastery, Dhammasara, the rocks underneath there are exactly the same type of rock which was in the east coast of India. And we were together many years ago. And I did mention about Kassapa, the Buddha, maybe in those days, that India and Australia were one continent. Not Sydney, that's way too far away, but. (laughs) 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 But Perth and this area, and that seems to be true. So maybe, thousands of years ago, the of the Buddha may have walked on the land that is now Jhana Grove. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> okay, it's very, that sort of stuff is unlikely, but nevertheless, it's possible. <laughs> what is it, okay what is the gender debate around ordination about? If I could answer that question, I really just can't understand it. Surely people like, there oh, was a good friend of mine, actually when he first came over to Thailand, I looked after him, that was Ajahn Amaro. You know his story, I'm going to say something nice about Ajahn Amaro first of all. <laughs> that doesn't sound good, does it? I said that I thought, oh, oh I should have said that. But Ajahn Amaro, uh, he, uh, he graduated in psychology from one of the universities in London, and after graduation he thought, I will just see if I can just take like a gap year. And so he knew a friend of a friend who was uh, importing racehorses to Singapore. And he got a free ticket, he knew about horses, even when he was young, he rode in the hunt. He had a nasty thing to do, but I don't think he knew what he was up to in those days. But anyway, uh, he saw he got a free ticket to Singapore as long as he is on hand to look after the horse if the horse misbehaves. Free flight to Singapore, and the plan was from Singapore just make his way you know, back to the west and have an adventure on the way. He wasn't a Buddhist. I don't know actually what religion he was, but he didn't know too much about Buddhism. So he spent some time in Singapore, and then he went through Malaysia, and then he went to Thailand. And in Bangkok, he met a couple of English people. They were from Save the Children Fund. And they had volunteered, a doctor and some nurses, they had volunteered actually to um, serve in a refugee camp outside of Ubon in northeast Thailand. As Ajahn Char land. <laughs> and so, yeah, why not? So he, he went there. It's a pretty boring place, Ubon. There's no great uh, places to go, which are naturally sort of spectacular. It's very flat and very um, poor. So he was in the refugee camp for a couple of days, he was just staying with the doctors, or well, actually outside staying, but visiting, and he was getting bored, is there anything else to do up here? They said, well, there is some Western monks in this monastery, in you know, the wat Nana Nanachart. He said, okay, I'll go and have a look. So they came up there, and you know, he saw the monastery, and that's when you know, he asked if he could stay the night. He said, yeah, sure. And this was someone who had no idea what Buddhism was, he stayed the night and in the morning you know, he turned up uh, at the morning meeting he'd shaved his own hair off he was bald and he told the abbot I want to ordain that, was, I mean, that really was weird why do you want to ordain? you don't even know what Buddhism is <laughs> but he said I want to ordain so he did ordain never anybody was so no, first off, just impressed with the monastery. So we ordained him, and then I did have to ask him to, in his training, which I was giving him, sort of, you know, your lay name was Jeremy Horner. And Ajahn Chah can't pronounce Jeremy, so he called him Jerebee. <laughs> and Jerebee meant axle Grease. And that became his nickname. We had lovely fun with nicknames. He became Axel Grease. So if ever you see him, say, Hello, Ajahn Venerable Axel Grease. <laughs> <laughs> you hopefully, you will laugh. You remember that. But one of the best nicknames was one of the Japanese monks. His name was Shibahashi. Uh, uh, that's right, Shibahashi. And when he ordained, Shibahashi was again. Too difficult to name a Japanese name to pronounce, so Ajahn Chah called him Si Bart Sip, which means like four baht fifty cents. <laughs> <laughs> and that became his nickname. As for me, uh, you no know, Peter. What, what, how can you get a nickname out of that in Thai? It was Peter. P means ghost, ter means real. <laughs> <laughs> That's a real ghost. <laughs> and that just shows you that even Ajahn Chah was always very light-hearted. He was really fun to be around. But anyway, Ajahn Amaro, sort of uh, his lay name was Jeremy Horner. And like Horner, I know a Buddhist called Horner. For those of you who have read in the... In the uh, Pali Text Society. These are the people who translated so many of the, the Pali canon into English. And one of them was Professor Irene Horner. She was up at Cambridge. And I never met her when I was there because I was at that time into other things rather than studying Pali. But anyway, I asked him now, Do you know, are you related anyhow to Irene Horner, the Professor of Pali? at Newnham College? He said, no, never heard of her. But then it fascinated him as a member of his wider family, obviously, who was a party scholar and he was now a monk. So when he went home, reason he went home because his father had a heart attack. He survived that heart attack, but he went home just to make sure that his father was okay. So he asked his dad, oh, do we know anyone called Eileen, professor in... Cambridge, party studies, and he said his father's face just went froze. We don't talk about her. His father said she was my sister, your auntie. Ajahn Amaro's auntie was a very well-known party scholar. And so the father was just negative towards that type of religion, in our religion. <laughs> and so he never let his son know that his auntie was Irene Horner, the party scholar. Eventually, I think they finally met just before she passed away. But the other I sometimes I feel a bit guilty saying this other one, story about his family, that he let on that his sister, this is actually Jeremy's sister, at an sister, you know, had a nice job in London, some secretarial work or something, working in an office there. But sometimes having to go to uh, go overseas for conferences and stuff. That's what happens in business; you have to go overseas. But you know, she never let on who she was working for. And after she retired, she let the family know she was working for MI6. Seriously, no joke. She had this amazing ability. She could read, you know, a document, no matter how technical it was, and she could just read it. She'd go back to London and just recreate it, so say exactly what was on there, 100% accuracy. So in the days, you know, when they still had the Iron Curtain, she was a wonderful spy. Somebody would actually get the document, She'd look at it turn it over and read everything, and then they'd put it back again, so no one knew that it was missing. And then she would go back to London and write it all out. What a weird family. (laughs) 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 It was fascinating, though. And that is not exaggeration. So, why, what's the ordination about? Is it just politically swayed? Basically, it is. And one of the reasons is that um, some of the monks, or many of the monasteries in the UK, got most of their support from Thailand. And if they lost that support, basically they'd find it very hard to survive. So they needed that support. Over here in Perth, look at the people coming on this retreat. Those of you here tomorrow, look at the people who are doing the Katina ceremony. It's not just Thais. There's so many Malaysians, Singaporeans, Sri Lankans, Burmese, Australians, Serbians, I don't know, and and Vietnamese, they're great supporters. You all come over here. So we've managed to do something really quite amazing here to keep all the different uh, ethnic groups together. And even though Bodhinyana Monastery and our city center Dhammaloka is officially in the records a Thai monastery. But sometimes you go there and it's a Singaporean monastery or a Sri Lankan monastery. It's for everybody. And that's how Buddhism should be. It's not a Thai monastery, or Sri Lankan monastery, or Vietnamese monastery. It's a Buddhist monastery. And that's something really quite special. And that means very often people have said, well, where's the Thai monastery here? And they say, oh, it's only Bodhinyana monastery or a Dhamma, uh, what, uh, the whole Dhammaloka center. Yeah, but where are the Thai monks? Yeah, you know, I was in Thailand many years, I'm recognized as Chow Kun by the Thai people. I've got the fan, it's over in the the library right now. Not the library, yeah, the State Museum. They want to put it up there. So anyway, this is a Thai monastery, as well as everybody else's monasteries. So it is recognized by the Thai government as the Thai monastery in Western Australia. And other groups have tried to set up a Thai monastery, a Thai Thai monastery, where they do you know, everything in Thai, and do the traditions in Thai, and do pictures of the, the King of Thailand everywhere. We do have a picture of the King of Thailand, we just bring it out for the Katina, you know, because you know, he does one of the main robe offerings. But they've been trying to set up a Thai monastery here in Perth for years. They never managed. Because the Thai people here have confidence and faith in the monks and this monastery. This is their monastery, and they're very, very happy with it. Not just happy with this monastery, but also happy with the bhikkhunis as well. They're kind of proud of it. We've done it, you ain't. (laughs) So that's a. Sometimes I feel very happy about that. That, you know, you're. You know, you mentioned that you go to um, England, and it's hard to get support from the Thais. But over here, you get support from the Thais. Uh, Jan, in that sense, we can't just say that it's a political thing in, in terms of they would lose all their support, because they also have the support of Sri Lankans. And yes. In England. So yeah. do you not think that if the senior monks in England had promoted the community, Indeed, they would have been keen. Well, be another... Yeah, well, the other reason, I did see in here somewhere. Okay. Oops, oh, this one up here, this is it. I, don't know. I need the exercise to stretch. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Bhikkhu Bodhi's second public letter on the Bikuni ordination criticized the fact that the ordination was done, that's Menoseri's ordination, before a major Wat Pa meeting. Why wasn't the ordination postponed? It wasn't a Wat Pa meeting. What we did, honestly, it was my idea to start this. um, Head monks, the Western monks of Wat Pa the, the, to have a meeting once every two or three years. So the head monks, the westerners, we could actually just discuss what was going on and maybe swap monks, swap ideas. So in the year of the Bikuni ordination, which was, what was that, uh, 2009, no. year, 2009. It was scheduled that the meeting would be held here in Perth. And we were just built the retreat centre so we could hold that meeting here. And so it was all arranged but they needed to have a an agenda. No one else, none, other, none of the other monasteries wanted to put pecuni ordination on the agenda. We were holding it so we put it on the agenda. The agenda item came from us. But then I knew there was resistance there. And what happened earlier, uh, good old it's good old uh, Buddhist Fellowship Singapore, they held, uh, what they call it, the the Global Conference Series. So they had the GCB, the Global Conference of Buddhism that year, in in uh, New Zealand. Did you go to that one? Yeah, it was just before. It might be 2009, maybe. Because it was very very close to the uh, Bikuni ordination. And one of the people who was there, one of the friends, he happened to be the chairman of the English Sangha Trust. And so I just asked him how are things going over there. I remember just walking back from the venue uh, to where we were staying, some student accommodation. Uh, his name was Colin Ash. He was a very wonderful man you know, he was actually gave a, a lecture about the economic value of Sangha. Because some people say, oh Sangha, we just sit here and we just eat your food, we collect your donations, so that we have a negative impact you know, on society. Sometimes people think like that. Well, we don't work. What do we contribute to society? But then, you know, he was one of the advisors of the Bank of England, a top economist at Reading University. So then Colin actually presented the fact that the economic benefit of people who promote virtuous conduct, honesty, trust. He said that has a discernible, measurable economic benefit on society. And he said the monks and the nuns more than merit you know the fact that they don't earn anything, but that they depend upon you for feeding us and for building the monasteries. In the same time, we're encouraging this wonderful trust and virtue. Even yesterday, after lunch, you know, once I was uh, finished and about to come here, someone had left their wallet, you know, by the in the top story of the monastery. You know, that is one time that monks are allowed to touch money, if it's lost in the monastery or if it's lost in the house which you're visiting. So we took it down and we found out it was one of our uh, disciples, Desi, Indonesian. Yeah, so she left <laughs> it so we, we came and gave it to her. I said, I got a present for you, Desi. Oh, what is it? Your wallet. <laughs> So anyway, that was kind of nice, that that trust, you can lose anything here and then we'll find it and we'll give it back to you. The honesty is really there. Even on one occasion, some years ago, there was a lady, a Thai lady, and this Ajahn Chakra was here at the time, and she wanted to donate fifty thousand Aussie dollars, so a lot of money, especially those days, and must about about twenty, thirty years ago to build a stupa, a chaitya in Bodhinyana Monastery. So it was accepted, but then, we decided we didn't want to build one over there. Now we accepted that money, so, you know, for a stupa. So I said, look, we cannot just do with this whatever we want. So I went to Thailand, and I made an appointment to see her, she was starting to get dementia, but I was told it was true. She maybe forget names, but she had full, uh, full memory of her accounts. <laughs> and that was true. And then I told her, said, some years ago you donated us $50,000 to Bodhinyana. I've come here to give it back to you. I'll arrange to send it to you because we're not gonna use that for a stupa anymore. That is you know, our honesty and integrity. We can't take this for something which we're not going to do. And then she said, said, oh yeah, I remember that. No, please keep it, do with it whatever you wish. So we had then ability to use it for other projects. But if we didn't build that stupa, we had to give the money back to her. That's kind of the integrity of the truth which we have to keep. So, but anyway, this gentleman, uh, the head of the English Anger Trust, how's it going over there? He said, oh, just, yeah, some of those trust meetings are just very, very difficult. The last one we had, oops, the last one we had there, not a ghost story, is it? <laughs> the last one we had, that we had a really big argument. Most of the trustees, actually all the trustees, they wanted to have pecuniary ordination in England. One of the senior monks who was there, I won't mention his name, but it wasn't Amaro, mm-hmm. just was shouting and said, no, totally refused. There's no way they could convince him otherwise. And because of that, I knew, you know, not just, Um, reading people's minds or you knew that at that meeting, if we had that meeting over in Perth that monk who would be there would have just blocked it because he blocked it no one else would be able to do anything that's one of the problems with Buddhism in Thailand you always have to follow the leader as I said and if you say no then you get into some sort of argument. But actually, because I know the Vinaya so well, monasteries are all independent of each other. What Dharmasara wants to do, I can advise them but I cannot make them do anything or stop them doing anything. In their area, they are the bosses. Not the head monk or the head nun, but just all the sangha. That's how it should always work. And you ask Ajahn Brahmali. I've been outvoted many times, and I'm happy that occurs. It shows that I'm not the dictator. I'm not Ajahn. Um, what's his name again? The Korean dictator, Kim Jong Un. I'm not Ajahn Kim Jong Un. <laughs> so we have the vote. We discuss it and when we sort of decide what to do together. So that's why I don't think I can get away with the Batmobile. I think I'll get outvoted. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of nice, the independence. Every monastery stands on its own. And if it's a good monastery, it will grow. If it's a bad monastery, it will just fade away. This is where democracy started. Buddhist monasteries are the longest continuous democratic institutions in the world. Twenty-six centuries have been going and we're still flourishing. I do not run Bodhinyana Monastery. I've got a lot of influence, but I don't run it. Does that make sense there? an explanation? That is why, yes, there was a meeting we proposed the agenda, but it never sort of was uh, followed through because that particular item, we knew, it was going to be blocked. So a joint meeting wasn't held. Wasn't held, yeah. In the sutras, it is described how joy leads to rapture, rapture to tranquility, tranquility to bliss, and bliss to samadhi, automatically. Can these positive feelings, mind states preceding the jhanas be felt simultaneously, or does one transform into the next when meditation deepens? One kind of transforms into the next. But when you have joy, rapture, tranquility, there's always some happiness there as well. It is as like I'm watching you. What am I focusing on? I'm focusing on Now, who's wearing spectacles, who isn't? I'm still watching you, but I'm watching a particular part of you, the spectacles. So that's why when you are watching these states, sometimes joy stands out. That's a, actually that's a, oh, what do you got here? Joy, rapture, tranquility, bliss. The joy here is, uh, pamoja, yeah, pamoja, it's joy, it's, Yes, it's joy, it's joyful, but it's also like some faith as well. You know when people get a lot of uh, confidence in somebody, that really inspires them. And sometimes even just to... See, and there's some of the Anagarikas, not just um, uh, Nicholas here, but people like, uh, what's his name? Prashant. You know, every time he says, Ajahn he just it's not over the top, it's just quite sweet and cute. But sometimes he overdoes the, there's this Pamoja thing in him. Always oh, so delightful to, if I asked him to actually to, uh, please take me for, on the car, oh yes, I'll do it. And so that's the, that's the Pamoja thing, just the faith and the joy. And then from that it leads to the, the rapture, that's the pity. The sukka is there as well but pity is what is mostly there. And the next thing which is, I think this is very profound, once you have that joy, it's easy to be tranquil. The kaya and jitta-pasadi. The kaya for the tranquility of your body. Yeah? What's pity? Pity is like this joy. And what joy, they've got here rapture, there are different names for each. It's a type of happiness, and in the second jhana, sorry, the third jhana, that is uh, the one which you see more than anything else, and that disappears, and then you have the, I don't know, I got it wrong, haven't I? Second, yeah, second jhana, that's right. You have the rapture, and then the sukha, and then the contentment. And what's the difference between each one of those? It's really hard to say because it's just so refined different forms of happiness, different forms of ecstasy. And the reason why it's hard to describe those things is a lot of people in this world haven't had any ecstasy at all. So they they literally don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, can these positive feelings perceived jhanas be felt simultaneously? Yes they do proceed but they can also be felt simultaneously and does one transform into next when meditation deepens? They just develop by themselves as you go deeper. The best simile was the thousand petal lotus. So you've got like the, the Pamoja petals, and you just watch them, it's very easy to watch, they're very delightful, and that opens up into the piti petals, like the rapture. And those petals open up and you've got this great tranquility, which is another form of happiness, peace and that opens up into Sukha and that Sukha opens up into the jhanas. What are you actually watching? Where does the nimittas come in? Here you see the nimittas but there's a lot of Sukha there and also piti. Is Mara a real entity or just a psychological projection? Both. It's a real entity but also psychological as well and so we use it in both ways. It's one of the reasons why our city centre, Dhamma we made sure we got that in a very appropriate suburb. No La Mara. It's English, no La Mara. <laughs> we don't know it's English. When you put La on something, you know, it just, it's an emphasiser. Okay La? Yeah. No, no la. No I think it was uh, the chief priest, Casey Dhammananda, pointed that out to us. It's a great place. <laughs> no la, mama. I've read translations that hatred is only overcome by love, but others say non hatred, which is better. Love is much better. The reason is that non hatred its like a synonym, it's just some of the times which they used. Um, uh, the word non-hatred and then meta love so more accurate translation is the love or loving kindness okay we go again oh let's see Amaro one again what's the gender debate around ordination about Um, Ajanamaro is a a good monk Uh, but sometimes they're blocking this and sometimes I wonder when some of the other monks, the elder monks, are disappear, whether they'd be very easily changed to have the bhikkhuni ordination in Amawati. You don't think so? We'll see. <laughs> the Metta Sutta says wishing in gladness and in safety. Whose gladness and safety are they really referring to? All of us. May all beings be at peace. Aren't you a being? So you are a being. That's one of the reasons why many, many years ago in Singapore, one of the Buddhists, they wrote a letter to me and they said, my son has just come out and said he's gay. What should I do? And I quoted the Mettā Sutta. Whatever living beings there may be, Whatever living beings, may they all be happy and well, safe and stuff. I said, so that's the lovely thing about the Metta Sutra, it's trying to include everybody. Why are you sort of taking out your son's you know, sexual or gender preference and just saying, yeah, I'll give loving kindness to everybody, but not you? That's not Buddhist. So it's wonderful to give love to all beings and then also to you. You're a being as well. So may all beings be happy. So Please don't forget to treat yourself equally, as with all beings. If you give, you know that story, I don't think I've told it here, I may have, about the, um, when I give the marriage blessings, when I look at the bride, you're a married woman now. You mustn't think of yourself. Oh yes, I understand that. You're a married man, you must not think of yourself. And in Australia, if it's an Australian man, he always pauses first. <laughs> but eventually he gives it, okay, yes, I won't think of myself, and then looking at the guy, and from this day on, you must never think of her, your wife and I look at her and I tell the wife, and you mustn't think of him, your husband, from now on. And they're very respectful, so they don't say anything. <laughs> when I first did that, I loved that occasion because they were just, what on earth is he saying? It doesn't make any sense. There's those moments of confusion where you have an opportunity to teach. and So they said, I said, Once you're married, you must never think of yourself, and you must never think of your partner. You must only think of us. You're in this together. Otherwise, in a relationship, if you think of your partner, you get burnt out after a while, there's nothing in it for you. You Just give, 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 give. But if you are uh, selfish, of course, that's not a relationship at all. Just thinking, what can I get out of this? But when it's about us, you're in it together. You grow together, you make mistakes together. When you make mistakes together, you don't blame anybody, you blame us. We're in it together. That changes the whole way that a relationship goes. And that's a good example of um, the, uh, the wishing, gladness and safety, you're included. May I be happy and well, may she be happy and well, may all the kangaroos and all of the people who don't like bhikkhunis to be ordained, may they all be happy and well, no exception. Dear Rajan, what is the meaning of the different finger signals in the Buddha statues? I know one, you may have seen, we haven't got one here, but usually in the standing statues, and they have their hands over here, have you seen those? That is uh, the hand signal for when you stand in a a defensive wall in a football match (laughs) and they're about to take the free kick (laughs) (laughs) Sorry (laughs) And this one over here that is a policeman signal (laughs) You've been speeding, stop Sorry. Now that one is the fearlessness. I don't know why they call that fearlessness, but anyway that signifies fearlessness. And this one over here, the one he's doing over there, it's calling the earth to bear witness, it's supposed to be touching the earth. That's when Mara was challenging the Buddha, said, what right have you to sit there? This is a holy place, who do you think you are? And that's Buddha touched the earth, say, but let the earth bear witness that I can sit on this spot because I'm an enlightened being." And then, the earth was supposed to have shaken. So, those were those symbols. We have the teaching symbol, and you can see the teaching symbol. Actually in the stupid. In the stupus, yeah. But I don't know why they call that the teaching symbol, because I've never done that when I'm teaching. I've taught a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's just what it's supposed to represent, and of course, the best one is the Samadhi meditation, and that's the one which is at the bottom over there. Yeah. I don't know what other ones you've seen. Yeah, that's. Another one, yeah. I'm not sure about that one. Mangos here, yeah. catching mangos. <laughs> okay, what is I'm almost finished now. What is the time frame between the Buddha Kasapa and our Buddha? You can't really tell for sure, but they always say in all of the uh, the doc, not all of the suttas and commentaries and Vinaya about this, they say that Buddha Kasapur was a previous Buddha and in, in the same eon. So it wasn't a previous eon. Even in Buddhism they had life before the Big Bang and there's been other eons. I don't know why we think that it's so special that we are in the only eon which ever existed. And that never seems right to me. And again, When I was a student of theoretical physics at Cambridge one of the best lectures I ever went to was by this rebellious physicist called Professor Fred Hoyle. And Fred Hoyle, he had this really thick North English accent, like a deep Yorkshire accent. And that was one of the reasons why all the other people in Cambridge didn't like him he didn't speak properly. But he was a brilliant, he's a genius. And I remember just going to one of his lectures in the biggest lecture hall they had in Cambridge, it was the Chemical Laboratories, uh, Lecture Theatre or Hall. And when he gave it they had two lectures. There it was the I think the two hundredth anniversary of the Cambridge Astronomical Society or something. And the one doing the B lecture was a fellow who invented, who actually discovered quasars. That was only the B Lecture. Fred Hall got the top billing. And I got the time wrong, I got there an hour early. Thank goodness, I could get in a seat. A lot of my friends were there, half the university was there, all packing into this place, you know, in the the, the aisles and everywhere. And it was electric. Just this fellow, he not only knew how to lecture and how to speak, but his ideas, his ideas were flowing out of his mind. And some of the ideas which flowed out of his mind, you see now have become true. They doubted him at the time. Eventually he got kicked out of Cambridge University. It was a great shame. Because eventually it turned out he was right. You know, Pre-Big Bang, steady state theory. So, and he had the maths to actually prove what he was saying. But it was just not, again, politically correct at the time, or like religiously correct. The idea of a big bang, that made especially the theistic religions very happy. They could have like a creation, a start of this universe. And Professor always says, it's no start. It just keeps going on and on and on and you know, that's very Buddhist. But I was Fred Horn, I, I love that talk. So anyway, the time frame, we're not really sure. But anyway, this also means it took Bahia such a long time to get enlightened, since he was a monk under the Buddha Kasapa. It took him like, you know, almost like maybe a third of an eon or something. So, oh, I don't feel so bad now. No, you don't need to. Okay. They uh, uh, said three in this. This is the fortunate eon I mean, like, uh, in the future. Is the and, the fifth will be and I think, and in the no, I it was there somewhere. I'm not sure. It's one of those things which I don't really pay too much notice about because it doesn't really teach the Dhamma. It's not really. Important for enlightenment, but it's just one of those things they say. But I thought there were three. And the Buddha was the third. Mm-hmm. There's five. Okay, you're right. Yeah. the fourth? Okay. Fourth. Okay. May try the fifth. Okay. It's not really important, but anyway. It could be in some of that, the Kudaka Nikaya, that's probably where you'll find it. Mm-hmm. Have you actually seen the sutras? The reason why sometimes they're big books, and the only reason they could put all this in a big book is because they got dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. Instead of explaining the first jhana, they've only got the first jhana, dot, 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 second jhana, dot, 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 third jhana, dot, dot, dot. If actually they wrote everything in there, which is in the suttas, with no abbreviations. Crikey. We wouldn't be able to put it in our library. They're very big books. Is that true? Okay, i saying the time, yeah, okay. The last question. I oh, know, that was the last question, goodness. The different finger signals, and, the last question, it's disappeared. Excellent, okay. Fine. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Okay. Sorry for going on a lot with the questions, but I think I always kind of made a resolution years ago. I remember seeing a Krishnamurti, um, actually hearing it. it was a recording of a talk he gave in New York Public Library. And it, actually I must admit it was boring until somebody asked this really good question and then I really sort of picked up my ears how is he going to answer this one and then he said "Ah, do I have to answer every question (laughs) that was the only question which really had some meaning to it and everybody laughed and he got out of answering it and I thought that was just um, unethical to do things like that So these days if you ask a question honestly I really try my best to answer as best I know. So that's one of the reasons thank you for letting me complete the questions which you put on the piece of paper in this session today. So now we're gonna have a toilet break if you wish and after the toilet break please don't wait for me to go out because I'm not gonna go to the toilet I'm quite happy. If you wait for me to go out you'll be waiting here (laughs) until ten o'clock Yeah. Oh, you can do better than that. (laughs) Try again. (laughs) Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Yes, better.